Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That? with me, Neil Delamere, and him, Dave Moore. We are proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network, and if you want to get in touch with the show, we are on at Neil Delamere Comedy, and he's at Dave Today FM. And brackets, only Dave Today <laughs> FM, if you've been reading the news in the last while. Hello, David. Hello. Yes, no news in my life. Everything's very quiet. Just here doing a podcast and everything's totally normal. Don't be worrying about it. It's all fine, Neil. Hi, how are you? Listen to see if Dave is extra polite to me over the coming weeks. Just just because all the all his male mo- role models, and I like to think of myself as one, uh, have left Dave's life. So yep. uh, Dave is very much solo. Needy Dave. I like this new superhero. What's good is that in my hour of need when, you know, having been stripped of uh, a male co-host companionship companionship and all of the things that are, are provided by, uh, by by someone like that Discipline. Uh, you lean straight in with the you worried i'm gonna leave you like you didn't even, like <laughs> literally the, the text i got at the moment that the, the announcement was made and everyone was full of support and <laughs> oh dave we're still and he was like you must be you must be scared right because yeah, i can yeah. walk out too like, i believe i texted you i'd like to renegotiate our contract i think <laughs> And you're yeah. like, and if we were making any money, I wouldn't be involved <laughs> in that contract. But as, at the moment, it's bonds of friendship, so you knock yourself out, my friend. <laughs> Negoci- renegotiate all you if want. People ha- but if you haven't, if you just love this show, our show. Yes, uh, and Dave, you have no idea about my yeah, radio we should ex- career. We yes. should explain that Dave, uh, Dave has the most popular show on commercial radio and uh, in Ireland, and it will continue to be so. But he has been doing it with a long-time partner, and uh, what a great radio partnership they have been. Dermot and Dave on Today FM and previously before that 98 FM and the two lads are going their separate ways to concentrate on different projects. We're just filling you in. We wish both of you the best luck and I won't be surprised by the massive success both of you will have in the future. I hate being sincere but it's true. <laughs> Let's especially wish me good luck because I own this podcast. You know, well, half of it. Anyway, That's so. true. And just for our listeners, um, Dave and I will not be doing Patreon episodes soon, but Dermot Whelan and I have a brand new podcast. <laughs> it is called You Told Me What Now? And. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> straight to paywall no free stuff just no. straight to yeah, paywall yeah. like on it he is the commercial brain that I've been He's looking for you, yeah for you years. should have been with him all along all so along. it's your turn uh, to wow me with something oh, amazing yeah. on this week's podcast what do you got for me I'm going to tell you in part two Neil well I'm not an expert is. an expert's going to tell you in part two yes. why Hitler okay you listen to me now Hitler had a list 
of every petrol station in the Midlands. <laughs> How does Hitler and my dad have that in common? Yep. The only thing I will point out they have in common. I, I, I would really genuinely hope so. It's crazy to think that Hitler had a list of like uh, uh, the reasons why are so phenomenal. But we'll get to this in part two. Dr. Joseph Quinn from Oxford University Ooh. Neil, is going to tell us about Hitler and the connection he had with the service stations in your neck of the woods in the Midlands and why this was a really important tactical thing for Hitler to have. And look, you know. We're not going to laugh at war. We're not going to laugh at World War II. Uh, but we are going to explore in part one, Neil, yes. some absolutely crazy army and military stories that I just, oh. I genuinely can't believe these things are real. Go on. I love this sort of stuff. Okay. So let's start off with the inflatable US Army. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not a bad place to start, I think you'll agree. So, look, there's no doubt that D-Day is, you know, probably the, the, the high point for the U.S. Army in World War II and everything that went on. 6th of June, 1944. There you are. Neil is a man of history. Well, 7th of June, 1944, the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops yeah. began deploying, now listen to this for a list of people, artists, yes. actors, designers, and audio technicians who were tasked with the following mission. Setting out inflatable equipment and patterns of movement that would make the Nazis think an entire combat division was in the area. So they had full-size inflatable tanks. What? Yep. With turrets. And what they would do is they could, like, obviously the, the tanks would be full of air and they would be, like, you know, liable to move in ways that wouldn't be the way that a tank would move. So these these people, their jobs was to make the tanks move the way tanks moved so that any kind of passing reconnaissance planes or people from higher vantage points would look down and see what looked like a massive combat division, but it would be inflatable tanks, inflatable um, military vehicles, fake guns, and it completely worked. This ruse was used more than 20 times. (laughs) forcing the Germans to redeploy their efforts to counter the fake division and likely saving thousands of Allied lives, obviously, during World War II when, when, when they did do that. But they would literally come over and go, they'd shoot at a tank and it would just deflate and go, they have done it again! <laughs> oh, God, I have so many... Do you imagine, like, seven-year-old French children? You know how excited a child gets at a bouncy castle? If you yes. saw an inflatable tank come up, up the driveway for your Holy <laughs> Communion, you would lose your mind. That's the first thing. The second thing, I have this image of, like, actors being drafted, God, I don't know if they can find a place for me in the army. I don't know if I like all that rough and tumble stuff. And then they come in and go, well, my friend, how about... The army, but with a musical flair. And there's all these guys. And they're in some sort of like West Side story, the Jets. They're just yeah. they're just kind of in a chorus line, flicking their way towards the Nazi front lines. But when you're a vet, you're a vet all the way from the left. <laughs> How do, you, how do you solve a problem like Arnhem? Um, that's amazing. That that was somebody's Unreal. job. You're not like the, the special forces behind enemy lines. You're no. deciding how a tank would move to fool a German uh, flight. 
totally, totally. Like, what an amazing job. Now, I don't know anything about losses or anything about casualties, but I really hope all those actors and sound designers made it back okay because they were just there going, we're just playing army. We're not doing real army. We're just over here inflating things. Although, if one of them, I mean, some of them must ever listen to the numbers of that. Somebody was shot. And you would just have to hope that the really, really talented actors just went, if they knew they were dying, went for the scene, Dave. Just went for it. (laughs) Like platoon. Like... (laughs) Oh, Exit Stage left <laughs> Let me tell you about Project Acoustic Kitty <laughs> Oh my god That sounds like you've got mice That's, It sounds like you've mice in your house And you've recorded the neighbour's cat going, Row, And it has nothing to do with war Whatsoever No this is the CIA Okay, so We're, we're, we're zooming forward to the 60s for a okay. minute The CIA Tried some wacky things And I guess One of the scary things is that during times of, you know, the Cold War, when surveillance and spies and all that was so important as a way of getting information and intelligence about the enemy and whatever, the CIA were very highly funded and they continue to be very highly funded. They spent in the 60s, Neil, 20 million dollars on a project generally called Acoustic Kitty. And what they did was they, they wanted to target an Asian head of state for surveillance. Okay. And they tried lots of different strategies and none of them worked. They were with, they had AIDS, uh, spies, they were, they were rumbled. They tried civilians, trying to get close, didn't work out. This particular Asian head of state, who isn't identified in the research that I found, he liked cats. Right. Felines. So what they did was they genuinely put microphones and skull transmitters on cats so they had microphones in their ears and they used their skulls to to transmit the sound back to recording CIA agents who couldn't get near the Asian head of state and the cats wandered around they got quite close to the Asian head of state and you can imagine the CIA's excitement after spending 20 million dollars training these cats to do this incredible job the researchers then acknowledged what I think all of us who've ever owned a cat or indeed ever encountered a cat know, which is cats don't give a fuck. <laughs> and they just went about their business and did whatever they wanted. They did not do what they were trained to do. They did not do what they were told. They did not go near the Asian head of state. They just went, got food, licked themselves, lay in the sun, licked themselves some more, made out with each other, made little baby cats. All of this was broadcast audio-wise back to the CIA lads, hoping to get information on the Asian head of state. Not a single piece, not a single fragment of useful intelligence. $20 million. Mother of God. I, I did. I wonder what happened to the recordings. Because if, <laughs> if, if you have seen the poorly reviewed Andrew Lloyd Webber-inspired <laughs> film, I think you'll find that maybe the recordings were found, put into a script, and they convinced and given to James, James Corden. Corden and Judy Dench to create that monstrosity. So there was the Cat Intelligence Agency, as I like to call it. Effectively, yeah, yeah. 20 million quid. Yeah. The Feline Bureau of Investigation would have been their brothers. Oh, we got all the jokes. Yeah, ridiculous, but no. Moggy Impossible 6. Oh, nice. That's, I'm, Very I'm nice. out. 
Sure, like, I mean, they've trained rats to find mines. They've trained dolphins yep. to sweep for yep. mines underwater. Mm-hmm. And the cat still remains there. Go fuck yourself. To- Untrainable. Just has no interest in what it... Don't forget, we don't own cats. They own us. Yeah. That's the reality of life. Like, they just look at you and go, feed me, rub me, open the door, close the door. Do we know where they left the cats? Did they, like, did this guy like... <laughs> no, did he? Did he like cats? And they just kind of left stray cats nearby him, hoping he would adopt one? I, I genuinely don't know. Okay. But that sounds like, you know... No, it sounds like they were able to plant the cat. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. I have an image of a cat buried up to its neck. (laughs) No, I fundamentally misunderstood how they reproduce. I've been watering this cat for the last six months, and there's still no happy. Wow. Okay. Did you know there was a plan to attack Castro's beard? Uh, no. Is this sort of a kind of? I, I know they had the plan with an exploding cigar. Uh, yeah, exploding cigar was definitely a plan. Again, CIA involved in lots of these. Is this a sort of a Samson? Like he derives such mm. power from his virile beard? Or yes, something? yes, yes. Is it, it is. The plan was to make Castro appear less virile. Right. So they figured out that they tried the exploding cigars, didn't work. Okay. They tried a, some rigged seashell bombs, did not work. So Castro survived whatever that plan was. And the next one they had was a plan to attack his beard using something called thallium salt or thallium salt. I don't know how to pronounce it, but T-H-A-L-L-I-U-M. And that salt is still used widely in, well, cats will like this, rodenticide. So it's a rat poison, effectively. But it is completely odorless. It is completely, you know, um, tasteless. And the idea was that the plot would be that somebody would sprinkle thallium salt on Castro's shoes during an overseas trip so that one of the side effects was, sorry, because it couldn't be, you know, they couldn't uncover it, discover it. One of the side effects is your hair falls out. Right. So the idea was if Castro, who's so synonymous with his beard, if his beard is not there, he will appear less virile and then the Cubans will not respect him as much. Perhaps he'll be overthrown, and that'll be good news for everybody who wants that. This failed. <laughs> did not yeah, work. I mean, we got that. Yeah, uh, as you've never heard of his beard falling out. But in all, Castro is said to have survived 634 attempts on his life. His former counterintelligence chief, Fabian Escalante, wrote that in a book and said 634 times they uncovered plots and attempts on his life. It doesn't fill you with the huge confidence in the abilities of the CIA, does it? They tried no. at least 634 times, which means probably double that, you know, if, assuming that the, the Cuban authorities didn't figure this out. And they failed every single time to get anywhere near Fidel Castro, who then handed uh, his power to his brother Raul, I think, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, again, you're more of a historian than I am. I mean, Fidel Castro died of natural causes in 2016 at the age of 90. None of these attempts affected him in the slightest. Who knows? He he might have been on course to ni- for 92 or 93, Dave. Well, you've got a point. They might have knocked good two years of Fidel Castro off with those 634 attempts. On, on... <laughs> Do you know what? Probably true. Well, I, I, I'd imagine once you get to sort of, you know, the first ones were probably, let's shoot him. Let's sniper him. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's blow him up. 
You know, blow them up. That, yeah. that's where you once you're into five hundreds, you are then into uh, exploding cigars. Yeah, uh, we'll try anything. Uh, thallium powder, um, rat powder on it. Has anyone considered <laughs> cats with microphones? I don't know, guys. Uh, is this an option? And a parrot that can make the noise of a car alarm that give him a heart attack. <laughs> uh, uh, safety pins that don't have the thing on them. Uh, paper cuts. Does anybody consider paper cuts? We cut him in his sleep. Death by a thousand paper and cuts. And he bleeds out. Uh, anybody? What about? What about? Okay, lads, listen. Listen, we're on 634 now. How about just... Boo! But in Spanish, is anybody is anybody considered that? Like it must have, it must have been a case of uh, like they must have suggested fucking everything, everything to get to six hundred and thirty-four, and as you said, probably double that for the ones that we don't know about. Guys, could we use Macaulay Culkin? I don't know why, and I don't know how. But it seems like we could. Yeah, there was, look, okay, right, 630 to 633, we're smothering them with different products. So pillows, <laughs> cushions. Uh, his, <laughs> throws. Throws. Oh, who had throws? Like, there must have been. Do you know the way, do you know Sergei Bubka? Do you remember Sergei Bubka? <laughs> yes. Sergei Bubka yeah. was a famous Ukrainian pole vaulter. And Sergei Bubka apparently used to get a, a shed load of money every time he broke the world record for the... Yeah. Pole vault, right? Now, pole vault, I can't yeah. remember what uh, what it was, but it was at was at six meters something or other, right? So, say it was six meters twenty, right? Bubka could do piece of piece could do six forty. Do you think he did six forty? Mm. He did six twenty one. Then he did six twenty two, yes. and then he did six twenty three. <laughs> so clearly, there's a CIA dude going. I reckon what'll really get him was is thallium. But I'm getting some sort of grant. So here's five hundred <laughs> other ideas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the poor CIAs. Although this is not the only time that something like this was attempted. Have yeah. you ever heard of Paula Hitler? <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. I mean, I think the only thing funny <laughs> that Paula Hitler would be an Irish name. Like, Siobhan Mussolini is inherently funny. <laughs> pa- no, who was Paula Hitler? Paula Hitler was Hitler's sister. And she was a no meek way. and docile woman. She just wanted everyone to get along. She was not right. in and did not share any of the disgusting fantasies of her all-conquering despot brother. She's just yeah. a lovely person. However, when the special operations executive, um, SOEs, when they heard about Paula Hitler and they found photographs of Paula Hitler, yeah. They realized that she was physically very similar to Adolf, but she was a woman. Did she have Tatash? No, she didn't. No, no, no. She, okay. was, she was a very handsome woman. No Tash. The issue was they actually didn't really want to assassinate Hitler. And I don't know if you know this. But you're a historian, Buff. I think you probably do. But one of the main reasons was that it would leave a power vacuum mm-hmm. that Goebbels or Himmler could have yeah. stepped into, who arguably were more insane than Hitler was, or at least more hell-bent on destruction, which is saying something that Hitler was. So the Allies weren't determined on, you know, to, to assassinate him in the way they may have done it or, or thought of doing in the past. Yeah. So then they said, okay, let's poison him. Non-starter. He had an army of tasters that checked everything that Hitler ate. Okay. Everything. Yeah. So it was never going to happen. So they said, okay, hang on. Let's like... The attack on Castro's beard. Yeah. Let's make Hitler 
be perceived as weak. Right. And if he's perceived as weak, it may lead to the downfall of the Third Reich. Yeah. And their idea was, let's, inverted commas, poison him with estrogen to make him more like Paula. Oh, so they kind of, so this doesn't really have that much to do with Paula, more that Paula seems sound and be more like Paula. Exactly, because Paula is unlikely to want to overthrow the Western world and, yeah. uh, you know, kill a lot of people who just have a different religion or whatever. So can we make Hitler more like Paula physically, hormonally, and presumably psychologically be like Paula? How did they try and get estrogen to him? In the, in the same way that they would have tried to, to poison, poison his food, because estrogen is, is, again, is lack of taste, lack of odour. They thought it would be perfect because you, none of the army of tasters would taste the estrogen. They would have a taste of the, I don't know how exactly they did it, but have a taste, wait for a reaction. Do you feel bad? Do you feel woozy? Do you feel like, you're gonna, no, I'm fine. I just might need to go put a, a hot water bottle on my belly and watch Sex in the City for a while. But other than that, I feel fine. Give it to Hitler. But, I mean, you'd have to keep Hitler on the estrogen, presumably, because, I mean, Hitler was bad enough, but Hitler going through menopause at some point <laughs> would be tricky, one would imagine. <laughs> I'd have to agree. I'd have to agree. Wow. So, like that, uh, when you're up against this, I mean, and, and it just goes to show you, like, that these people had, there was no sort of stupid ideas. Well, we may consider no. them stupid ideas, but there's nobody in the room going, that's absolutely ridiculous, John. That is yeah. a ridiculous idea, Mary. They are going, well, okay, we can get estrogen to Hitler. And then I wonder how. <laughs> Can you imagine just watching Hitler slowly become more reasonable and wi- willing to listen to other people in the room and not just talking over somebody else going, no, that's, that's actually a good idea. That is, no. That's... <laughs> well, we've done an episode on the Mosuo tribe who are a matrilineal society where yes. women lead the society and the outcomes in, in a health point of view, health outcomes are better for everybody involved. So maybe you're right. Maybe slowly Hitler would turn into a very reasonable, very, you know, sound individual, just like Paula was. And the whole history could have been different. But or or Hitler I, becomes I guess it would have been a slow process. Hitler becomes worse because he retains <laughs> all the traditionally male characteristics. I'm using that in inverted commas, but now can multitask. <laughs> and, and that's an absolute disaster, Dave. <laughs> It is, it is, it is. Um, and finally, I want to tell you about uh, something that happened, which you've probably heard of, but do you, have you ever heard of the thing? And you, I know you don't have kids, Neil, but you were a kid at one point. Yes. That's... Did your parents ever say to you, eat your carrots because they're good for your eyes? Yes, of course it did. Absolutely. It's known the world over, carrots good for your eyesight. Yeah. Presumably the logic, as we're all now adults and we understand a little bit about maybe biology and things like that, mm. that it's a hormone or vitamin, some kind of ingredient, yeah. the vitamin in the carrot that is good. No, it's because of World War Two. So here's what happened. Right. The, the Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe suffered serious casualties in their daytime raids over the UK and, and over France and heading for the UK. So they decided to do night operations. So they would yeah. fly... And try and bomb the UK in the nighttime. For some reason, they kept getting shot perfectly at nighttime. And they were like, what's happening? Is there are there pilots that can see in the dark? The British government heard this story that the Luftwaffe believed that the British pilots could see in the dark. The British government had a huge food surplus of carrots. 
Right. Because obviously food was scarce. People were on rations. But they just had... Loads of carrots. So many carrots. Right. So they put out posters all around the UK to say, eating carrots improves your eyesight, particularly your night vision. This obviously got back through counterintelligence to the Germans. And at one point, the Luftwaffe allegedly believed the consumption of carrots was the reason why they were getting shot down <laughs> over Britain when, when the pilots who ate more carrots than the Germans were able to see in the dark. Now, it is literally because the Brits had a lot of carrots and just needed to get rid of them and get people to eat carrots when they had nothing else to give them. But interestingly, the reason why they were being shot down yeah. was because of a man called Robert Watson Watt. If you've ever heard of him. Yeah, he had hired loads of owls. They were working for the British. They were, see, much more trainable than cats. And a lot, a lot of their ancestors, a lot of their, sorry, <laughs> descendants worked for Harry Potter. So, I mean, they have worked well with humans for years. They have. You're, you're, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. No, uh, he was hired by the British government to work on the theory that the Germans had invent, invented a death ray. An yeah. actual, like, it sounds like a, a comic of that era. Like, here come the Germans with a death ray. But basically, there was a theory that the Germans could heat up the internal, like the, the liquid inside a human, the blood inside a human. Yeah. Heat it up over, because it's 98 degrees Fahrenheit. I think 105 is when you start to pass out and die and what it, maybe not die immediately in that way. But the logic was that there was an ability of the Germans to have this ray they could point up at passing fighter jets uh, and bombers and heat up the British pilots to the point where they would pass out and then crash their planes. So he did some maths on it and came back to them and said, nah, impossible. There isn't enough power in the world for this kind of array to exist. So you have nothing to worry about. However, I did have an idea while I was thinking about this. They were like, oh yeah, what's that? And they were like, he was like, I've invented something called radio detection and ranging where I fire sound out into the sky and it comes back to me. And I've shortened radio direction and ranging to radar. He invented the character from MASH. <laughs> That's, I mean, That's I thought he was a just, reference just, that very few people will get, Neil Delamere. I just thought he had a mammy and a daddy like all the other boys. But he was invented <laughs> by a scientist. So your man invented radar before the Germans copped what radar was, and presumably by the exactly. end of the war, they figured out what radar was. They all, absolutely, of course, yeah, yeah. But this was this was how they were shooting them down. But for that joyous interval there, they were like, seriously, they're all eating carrots. This can be the only explanation. They're eating more carrots. We must eat. They're shooting us. It's the carrots or the owls. <laughs> it's one of the two things. I will not accept <laughs> any other explanation because we have killed all our proper scientists. Yes, the Britons eating carrots was not the reason they won the war. <laughs> there were other reasons involved. But why, Neil, did Hitler have a list of service stations in Ireland in the Midlands during World War II? We need to investigate this, and we'll do it in part two with Dr. Joseph Quinn from the University of Oxford. He's going to join us in a sec. And why would you tell me that? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? And we are joined now by Dr. Joseph Quinn uh, from the Faculty of English in Oxford University. He's project coordinator with Their Finest Hour. Joseph, thank you very much for joining us, first of all. Thank you very much for having me, lads. Good to see you. Listen, I said to Neil in the first part of this episode that I would explain why the Nazis had a plan to invade Ireland. Um, he didn't really believe me, uh, but it's true. And I also told him that we would discuss petrol stations up and down the Midlands and why <laughs> they were important. So let's begin then with, this, with the basic question, which is why would anyone invade Ireland during World War II? There's only one reason why anybody would invade Ireland in World War II, and it's because of our geographic location. We have a prime position in terms of the approaches to Western Europe. Uh, we are very, very strategically located. It's one of the curses, really, of our geographic location in a time of war, particularly in this part of the world. We occupy a major strategic significance. We still do, due to this day, there's a reason why there was controversy about American troops going to Shannon Airport. It's a stop-off point. The other thing, and if you read the reports of the basically the director of Irish military intelligence, Colonel Dan uh, Bryan, uh, during the Second World War, you will see that one of his big observations at the outset of the Second World War was that it was not possible to fly to or from Europe without crossing into Irish airspace. So in yes. terms of the airways, you cannot go anywhere near Northwest Europe if you're coming from North America without crossing into Irish airspace. Even when Luftwaffe flights and um, German naval support flights were flying anti shipping um, patrols, basically dropping torpedoes on incoming uh, convoys off the coast of Donegal, they had to cross over parts of the Irish coast as inevitably as part of reaching their target destinations. 
And in addition, also, Ireland is absolutely essential for the convoy escorts and for the safety of the convoys that are coming across the North Atlantic. Now, in the case of the Second World War, the solution that they found was the fact that Northern Ireland was still in the United Kingdom meant that they were able to actually get the convoys across the Western approaches through the northern part of the Western approaches, which fed into the Clyde and then into the Mersey through the Irish Sea, and they're able to safely direct the convoys through there. And it also extends the operating range of the U-boats uh, almost to their, the capacity of their operating range, but they found a way around that. The reason they decided to close down the southern part of the Western approaches, which went in past Kinsale, was because during the First World War, that was a veritable graveyard. So the British chiefs of staff effectively concluded that they didn't need the south. They didn't mm. need the ports in the south, but they did very much need the ports in Northern Ireland. And actually, it's debatable whether the Allies could have actually prevailed in the Second World War without the port of Derry or Londonderry, whatever you want to call it, the foil absolutely vital in terms of the turnaround times for the convoy escorts. They needed Derry, they needed those port facilities in Northern Ireland. Wow. Without without Northern Ireland, it's debatable whether the Allies would have been able to prevail because the Battle of the Atlantic, that was crucial to winning the Second World War. And that's that's why Ireland was important. And that's why so many people serving in the Royal Navy, serving in the Royal Canadian Navy and later the US Navy, and on those merchant convoys coming across, that's such resentment towards neutral Ireland because it, it felt, why are these guys staying out of the war? We really need their help. It's because the cockpit of that particular part of the war has really been fought off the Irish coast. Now, I did also mention to Neil in part one that Hitler had a list of lads who worked in the Midlands <laughs> Maxall stations. And um, why in the name of heavens do the Germans have this kind of a list? And they genuinely did. Did he love chicken fillet rolls? I need to know the answer to this. Jumbo breakfast rolls, yeah. yeah. I would like a jumbo breakfast roll, bitte. Hitler, oh, he was mad for the sausages. And two extra hash browns. Could I get some hot sauce, brown sauce yes. that, please? I call hash browns Eva's. Eva Browns. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, go on. Why petrol stations in the Midlands? Well, uh, uh, such as they were then, like the petrol pumps outside, you know, sort of certain stop-off points, the the old-fashioned ones. I think yeah. some of them were still preserved in certain places, in County Leitrim and some such places. But the thing about it is that um, even if the Germans had, in some fantastical alternative reality, maybe portrayed in The Man in the High Castle, if they had actually invaded Ireland, they would have wouldn't have found much petrol of much use. They might have been able to fill the petrol tank of one tank with the supply of the Midlands. Right, right. Because the fact of the matter is there was hardly any petrol coming into Ireland. There probably wasn't enough petrol to fuel the one available mobile division that we had in the entire Irish army to basically send it anywhere. We were starved of supplies by 1940. And by 1941, there was virtually nothing coming in. We didn't really have much by way of petrol supplies. So if Fritz from Nuremberg had rocked up in his Mark III Panzer tank as far as where Kilmartin's is currently now, you know, just down the outside, the ring road outside Athlone, and mm. um, that roundabout today would have a Panzer Mark III tanks just standing, you know, sitting ups, uh, <laughs> you know, obsoletely in the middle of that roundabout because that's as far 
as the German advance would have gotten. It wouldn't yeah, have hell really... of a tourist attraction. It'd be a better, <laughs> better than the Cadillac down in Barack Obama Plaza. I'll tell you that much. So, so is the idea that they had to list these petrol stations because they obviously need to refuel their yes. own whatever whatever invasion force they do use in this plan, what? but they're not going to bring all their fuel with yeah. them, is it? Okay, what they're thinking about, this is what they're thinking about. They're thinking, they're going in with the mindset, and it's. I think they kind of recognize that it's not applicable um, to Ireland or even to the UK, but they're thinking about France 1940, because this is what happened in France 1940. If France, if France um, in 1940, just before the Germans crossed into French territory and invaded the country proper, was the most motorized society in the world, uh, other than the United States. And actually, they technically, per head of population, they actually had more, they were more motorized than even the US was. So it was the most, mo- one of the most motorized societies in the world with first class road infrastructure. And they also had the routeways mapped from one end of the country to the other. They had service stations, petrol stations, uh, fuel depots, and it was all marked out meticulously on Michelin travel maps. And the Germans, when they invaded France, these German panzer divisions, had copies, surplus copies printed out of these Michelin maps. And they literally basically overran the country just on the back of its wow. travel infrastructure. They, they, and in some cases, they even stole French vehicles and used them. They were able to appropriate French army vehicles, civilian vehicles, and they were able to use them to motorize basically the units that were on foot or using horses and carts that, that were not motorized because the German army was only partially motorized. Uh, and remained so until the end of the war. But this this is how they invaded France, and that's what they're thinking about when they want the names and locations of petrol stations. Well, they would have been met with a surprise when they rocked up and found out that there was only a breakfast roll on offer and that the fuel had run out, presumably in the late 30s. Um, <laughs> what, what, when would this plan have been formulated? What point in the war are we talking about where somebody actually created something which I believe was called Operation Green? Yeah, the plan for Operation Green was really formulated around about the 1940s, was the 39-40 period. Now, obviously, the thing about it is these plans are basically active operational plans that are they're really conceived in the interwar period. The Germans actually start thinking about their operational capacity long before this point. And they, like, I mean, this is what militaries do during peacetime. They work out scenarios, basically conflict scenarios. The current war in the Ukraine was war game 20 years ago. Right. Okay, it was a long time ago they worked out that a conflict like this was going to happen and they planned for it. And the Germans, like the British, they planned for a conflict of this nature, but they didn't expect the level of success they had, but they did anticipate that they might need, if they had a certain level of success, that they might need a plan of this particular kind. And, you know, they, they, they... they did uh, surveys of a lot of countries through their espionage networks. And when it came to 1940, they did a very detailed, like r- running from really the middle of 1940 right through until 41, they did very detailed aerial reconnaissance of the entire island of Ireland. Ooh. And they mapped out all these areas. These, these are sites like places like Dublin and Belfast that are going to be they're going to be bombed heavily by the Luftwaffe. They, they, they basically, they flew over a lot of beaches and they produced photographs of potential landing areas. And they did this in the UK and they did this in Ireland. And they, they, they prepared these plans with the intention of one day using them. Of course, they were never used. And they worked out a strategy of how they would basically land in Ireland. Oh, um, yeah. Well, let's, let's get into that because that's fascinating. Where would they have come in? They had identified a few sites, but they they said that the most land, likely landing sites 
would really be in the south, particularly around Cork. So like Cork and the facilities over there would have obviously been a target because you've got the largest deep water harbour or one of the largest in the world at Cork Harbour. And, you know, you have the naval facilities at Cove, Spike Island. These are major military targets of, of huge significance. They were a, a thorn in the side of the, the Kriegsmarine as it was in the First World War because all the, you know, the Royal Navy and American, you know, the Allied anti-submarine patrols were directed out of these ports. So they would have targeted these and tried to seize these facilities. But they, in terms of landing troops, they most likely would have landed in Wexford and Waterford because if you're coming from France, if you're mounting an invasion from France, and even if you have a toehold in the UK, in the southern part of the UK, and you're mounting an invasion of Ireland from there, the most logical place is to land in basically the southeast corner of Ireland. It's the it's the best place to land, and the um, the landing area really stretches from the you know the open beaches on the east coast of Wexford right around as far down as Dungarvan Bay. How many men are we talking about? Um, we're talking about a force that was uh, was allocated to this was uh, about fifty thousand men, and it included sort of a motorized division, Panzer division. And um, they would have allocated airborne troops as well. There is only one problem with this plan. Problem with the plan was that it was logistically impossible again. And leaving aside lack of fuel supplies once you land, the impossibility of the terrain, plus the very likeliness that British troops were going to meet them at some point. British troops in Northern Ireland were going to come down. They were going to hit them hard. The Royal Air Force was also going to come in and hit them very hard as well. And they're going to get as much resources over to Ireland as they possibly could and support them. Plans were in place to do this. But it, but the problem is, how do you get them to Ireland in the first place? The Germans, by this particular point in the war, after they've taken France, they no longer have the surface naval capacity to mount an operation of this nature. Because in April 1940, they mounted an invasion of Norway. It succeeded, but only narrowly so. The Allies contested it. The British and the French landed troops. The Royal Navy really contested the invasion. But ultimately, the, the Allies decided to withdraw. The reason was is because the Germans looked like they were going to break through on the continent and they needed to rally the resources and redeploy them elsewhere. They recognized that they could not fight a war in Norway and also try and basically repel a German assault in the West at the same time. They needed to choose between one theater and another. So they withdrew from Norway and they let the Germans have the country. The Germans just piled a lot of resources into Norway, but it was sort of a Pyrrhic victory because they lost 50% of their destroyer force. Wow. Now, the thing about it is during the Second World War, the Japanese demonstrated that you could, you didn't need landing craft necessarily or basically dedicated landing, you know, sort of amphibious assets to mount an invasion or landings in certain areas. They were able to take hold of large areas of the South Pacific just using destroyer flotillas. But the thing about it is once you lose a destroyer force or once you lose a certain percentage of it, your fleet, your surface fleet is vulnerable. You cannot operate without destroyers. And once they lost 50% of the, they lost 50% of their destroyers in one battle. That was the Battle of Narvik. And yeah. once that happened, they were done. Say, say they had won that or, or hadn't lost, say, 50% of the, what is it called, Kriegsmarine? Kriegsmarine, Kriegsmarine right. That's So the, the German Navy, essentially, yeah. right? Yes. So say, say, say they hadn't lost that many destroyers and they're like, okay, we are going to invade Ireland and they land their 50,000 uh, troops and presumably lay waste to whatever's in front of them on the way to 
their jumbo roll somewhere around Monaster Revan, possibly at loan, <laughs> depending on the various success. What are we doing at this point? <laughs> like, say, say me and Dave are, are of uh, draftable age. Uh, what are we at? Are we ich weiß nicht, was du mir surprised by, weil ich werde Deutsch <laughs> Ja, ja, genau. Wie kommt mich am besten zum Bahnhof, bitte? Basically, we have already established we've collaborated with the enemy, but... <laughs> But apart from us, the real patriots. Yeah, will we? Will people be as turned as easily as us? What sort of opposition would they face, I suppose, is the question I'm asking. The Irish army would have basically mounted token resistance. They probably would have been able to hold them in certain areas with conventional strength, but they really would have lacked artillery in the south. The reason is, is because 90% of our artillery was up at the border. We were pointing our guns, what little few of them we had, in a completely different direction. We were pointing them at Northern Ireland. We did have troops in the south rehearsing for a potential landing. And actually, the Irish military leadership thought that there might be a possible, there was a big scare factor in 1940. It's only in retrospect that people realized that these things were not really possible. But at the time, the panic level in the UK, as well as in Ireland, was such because of the the speed and the, 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 the level of success of these German lightning advances and the, the totality of their conquest of these areas of Western Europe, that they thought that they were next. So they did have troops preparing in the south for a possible invasion. And, you know, they prepared for holding actions in certain places. The Cumra Mountains was going to be a place where they would potentially try and hold the Germans as a natural obstacle. It's very difficult for the Germans to break in, in towards Tipperary in that area. So presumably what the Germans would have done, they would have chosen a narrow, narrow corridor between the Cumras and other high points and also the Wicklow Mountains to the north and other high areas in heading into Carlo, Carlo and sweeping around and heading towards Dublin. They wouldn't have made it though because probably the level of resistance that the Irish army would have mounted, particularly through local defence force units, through guerrilla attacks, through laying mines in different areas, they wouldn't have been able to make it there. And also the British troops in Northern Ireland, the garrison force in Northern Ireland, about 100,000 of them would have swept down and they would have swept down on a three-prong axis. They would have immediately swept down to take Dublin and protect it. And they would have formed a ring of steel, uh, basically along along the axis of what we now call the M50. And they would have basically, they would have protected Dublin. And So they would have protected like the main assets, the IKEA, the decathlon out in Ballymun, obviously, <laughs> the, the airport, the spa hotel there probably. I mean, that's the first thing you're going to protect as well. <laughs> but you, you mentioned the token resistance we've put up. Now, I, I wanted to look at weaponry that the Irish army would have had at this situation. I've read we had 82 machine guns in total uh, for the defence of the entire state of Ireland. <laughs> really? 82? Yeah. 82, we, had, we, we had more. We had more machine guns during the Civil War. Way more. In what the else Civil you got on the list? That they have eighty-two machine guns. Eighty-two machine guns. We are very short of Bren guns, which is another type of gun that we needed. We're very short of tanks. I believe we may have bought a couple of Swedish tanks. Uh, one of which the turret was broken. Am I right about that? Yeah. The tur- they order. So they ordered these two tanks, and the second one, the second one that was delivered, it broke shortly after delivery. The ta- the turret wasn't working, so they. They basically went to the Swedes and they're, they're like, ah, here. And it's a, you know, sort of, is there a warranty on this? And then the Swedes sent another one and it's fucking broke again. <laughs> we had to self-assemble a Swedish tank. Ikea sent us a tank, basically. Did we, did we ring the Swedes and go, listen, there's a bit left over and we have no idea. There's no Allen key with this. I don't know what to do. I, I thought broken tank was the, just the name that you give these things. <laughs> broken tank. So broken tank. So you've got two tanks, 82, 82 machine guns, one brain gun. What else, Dev? We have a, 
a phosphorus factory, a grenade factory near Phoenix Park. Yeah. That's right. We do have a phosphorus factory, but it's red phosphorus. This is the thing. It's not the white. They do have white phosphorus grenades mainly supplied to the British, but the red phosphorus that we use, this is basically made from seaweed. So this is an interesting story. So basically we have these red phosphorus grenades, but they're not as good as white phosphorus grenades. These are the real lethal things. And they've been produced from this factory that's at Parkgate near enough to a major Irish army. It's, it's the headquarters of Irish army intelligence. It's a major center. They've also got barrack facilities around there. You can see them to this day around that part of the Phoenix Park, but they have this factory there. And the, the, what they were doing at this factory was absolutely, it was lethal work. And they were pumping the smoke out and there were people who were dying all around the Parkgate area from the fumes that were coming out of, out of the factory. And they worked this out. So eventually, they recognized they didn't need the factory and they closed it up. But they're left with the supply of red phosphorus and they're just like, what, what are they going to do with it? So it turns out that there was this guy who was a friend of De Valera's who was considering setting up a matchmaking company, basically, you know, a box of matches. Mm. And if you want to know why Cara matches have red, red phosphorus, that's no why. way. They got the supplies of red phosphorus from Parkgate and they started making matches with it. And that's why... Every time you buy a box of Cara matches, when you have red phosphorus tips, you can thank the Irish Army Red Phosphorus Grenade Making Facility. Oh my God! Incredible. This was made out of seaweed. Yeah, seaweed. I just have this image of if he didn't get it to De Valera, he's giving it to the Bull McCabe to fertilise that field <laughs> that the Yank takes off from eventually. Uh, well, what I'd love to do is ask you about uh, our ability to have Spitfires. Why? I mean. We we did not have anything that would you know be an, a, a reasonable air defense against the Luftwaffe or whoever else the British Royal Air Force or whatever uh, whoever was going to attack us. But we did have Spitfires, and I think Neil will love the reason why we had Spitfires. Yeah, this is at a later point in the war. We did get Spitfires, so um, there were crash landed Spitfires that we fixed up. In fact, actually, there are, are a, 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 I think a pair of two seater. Spitfires that are now owned by the Royal Air Force. I think they're part of the Battle Britain Memorial Flight. And I was reliably informed by a Berlin airlift RAF veteran in RAF Coningsby many, many years ago. He told me that the two-seater, um, you know, the twin-seater Spitfires, trainee Spitfires that they had were were bought from the Irish Air Corps. And they these were crash-landed Spitfires that they basically they patched up and they actually extended the fuselage um, using spare bits of broken fuselage and whatever. And they actually fixed this up. And British technicians, when they examine this, they still have no idea how such a poorly equipped, poorly supplied Irish Air Corps managed to put these things together. They, they said so was... we, we didn't repair it. We, we stretch limoed like to a Debs, a Spitfire. What you don't realize is that we actually pimp my rided the Spitfires. <laughs> Exhibit was there in Exhibit. 1944, and he was like, "Hey, yo, man! I know you just wanted to get this Spitfire in the air, but I tell you what, I did. I put a TV in the in the back. <laughs> I stretched it all out. You get two people in there, and it's got UV lights underneath. Man, it's fly, yo! Yeah, yeah, there's like there's a goldfish tank in the back of it. <laughs> there's a disco ball, and the Germans are. I'm pretty sure we could shoot it down, but it would be such a waste. Look at it." <laughs> And don't forget, there's bulletproof glass in those things. So if you want to put a, you know, a gangbanger in the back, there you like, go. Oh, there you go. You know. <laughs> 
Can you, can you imagine trying to land that thing and it bounces off the runway and everything thinks it's pilot error, but it's not. It's just one of those hydraulics. <laughs> with a Spitfire, with a Spitfire in terms of landing, the, the thing they said about Spitfires during the war, they said they, they were ladies in the air, but bitches on the ground. They were very difficult once you had them on the ground because they were so highly strong, basically. There's so much power. I, a friend of mine, uh, that was basically his wife's wedding vows. That's that's what she says. <laughs> <laughs> I promise to love, honor, obey you. And baby, I'm going to be a lady in the air, but a bitch on the ground. <laughs> As a final question to wrap this up, we were neutral, something that, that De Valera, you know, had gotten us into this position. It's a difficult thing to be neutral in a war against, you know, the Nazis, you know, these these murderers, the atrocities they're committing, uh, the Holocaust. I mean, we, we had done it in the US. I know at one point we're very upset about us in relation to um, Pearl Harbor and things like that. So our neutrality was a difficult thing. Were we right to remain neutral, do you think, Joseph, in this situation? Absolutely. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I'm an Irish historian based in the UK. The reason is, is because I specialize on the history of the Second World War in this country. I'm Part of a project called Their Finest Hour, where we're researching the public history of this country's role in the Second World War, Britain, the Commonwealth, you know, the Empire, Ireland as well is also included in this. So obviously I'm heavily invested in this topic, and you might assume that I would be totally pro-Allied. I am to a certain extent. But when people ask me whether Ireland was morally justified in being neutral, particularly cantankerous types in this country who constantly poo-pooed the position that Ireland, some, not all, but some still do, uh, you know, the fact that we sat on the fence during the Second World War and have a, there's still a very, very uh, dim view of this within some circles. I turn around and say we were absolutely right to be neutral during the Second World War. We, in a position such as we were in during a time of massive international conflagration, as a state, we had no loyalty. We had no, we were in no position to be loyal to anyone but ourselves. And the reason I say this is because neutrality was a choice that was made not just by us during the Second World War, but by at least seven other countries in Western Europe, they, m most of whom were later overran and occupied by the Nazis. But everybody chose neutrality. Nobody wanted to go to war in 1939. The Germans didn't want to go to war. The British didn't want to go to war. It was really a last resort because they had to stay, they had to say to Hitler, there is a consequence for you constantly crossing the line on this. And when he invaded Poland, that was the red line that he crossed, which triggered the world into another global conflict. But in that instance, we had long prepared our position. Neutrality as a policy was not de Valera's design. It was not de Valera who came up with this policy. It was actually the Irish Free State Government of W.T. Cosgrave in 1925. And we worked out that we needed to be neutral. And the, the policy was we were going to stay out of the, any future world war conflict that may occur. We were not going to take any side, but one thing we were going to absolutely do is make sure that no belligerent, enemy belligerent, was going to use Ireland as a base to attack the UK. And we had to ensure that absolutely. And those were the conditions of our neutrality. So when we became neutral during 1939, um, we were in a difficult position. We couldn't declare for one side or another because everybody in Ireland was going to choose a side. And most people chose the Allied side. We had possibly up to 160,000 volunteers just from the South serving in British uniform during the Second World War. That's not including people from the North. We don't really know how many 
from Ireland served during the Second World War. But we definitely had close on 200,000 people um, working in factories in the UK or in some other form of labour necessary to the British war effort. We made a huge contribution as a neutral country towards the Allied war effort, and we very much were pro-Allied. And de Valera did clarify this. He had a meeting with the German representative, Dr. Hempel, at the beginning of the war. And he said, at the, from the very outset, he said, we are going to be neutral, but our neutrality is not going to be totally impartial. We are inevitably going to show, and he used the words, a certain consideration towards Britain. And that was inevitable because we're linked, we share a land border with them and our economies are tied and there's constant immigration and movement between both countries. So he made it very clear, we will be neutral, but it's going to be very much impartial and we are, it's going to be very difficult for us to be as impartial towards you or towards the British, given the fact that we have these closeness of links. So it was an odd neutrality, a very much a pro-allied neutrality. But nothing that we needed to apologize for, not, not with, with maybe one or two exceptions. Amazing. Dr. Joseph Quinn, project coordinator for Their Finest Hour and member of the Faculty of English course in University of Oxford. Thank you so much for educating us on this. This has been fascinating. I'm going to remember Cara matches for the rest of my days. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, Joseph. No problem. <laughs> Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That, Neil? I told you I would, um, you know, make you intrigued by the notion that Hitler knew all of the petrol station owners in the Midlands. And and you kept good that promise. I I still have this image of Goebbels and and Goering and all the rest of lads just going into a Midlands petrol station on a Saturday and go, <laughs> like, I have two local states and as a... Six euro a lot of quick pick, please. And and how how come it how come it's so busy? Oh, the the county finals on, so you'd be lucky to even get a drop of petrol out of it. To be honest, with you. <laughs> yes, uh, the euro millions is almost too big. <laughs> what would you do with that money? I would just like some just this small place. Um, I didn't believe you when I, when they. I, I mean, I know they like their lists, the old Nazis, but I didn't think Midlands uh, petrol stations will be one of those lists. But you listen, if I've learned one thing on this podcast, it is that when Dave Moore makes a promise, he backs up that trivia best promise. <laughs> well, I should point out that it is really Joseph Quinn that did all the work on that. In fairness, I just brought him to the table. But fascinating thing, Operation Green. Uh, definitely something I did not know about before I started researching this. And hopefully that's the way we want you all to feel as well. That you've learned something you didn't know before you hit play. Well, um, do you want to know what I'm going to tell you next week? Because it's kind of related to, to, well, dictators, shall we say. While we're on this kind of rich vein of form. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you one of two things because I haven't arranged them properly yet. But one of them, <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. One of them will either be, so you will either find out. Why General Franco, the Spanish dictator for a large part of the 20th century, tried to rig the Eurovision Sorry, or... Why, why are you saying or? That might be the greatest thing you've ever said to me. Because I haven't ironed it out fully. Or right. how a South African man invented the single most Irish drink that you could possibly imagine. Ah, stop. Now, okay, you to make me a promise, right? Yeah. You to make me a promise that whichever one you iron out... 
uh, like yes. a creased shirt, whichever one you iron it, whichever one you ball up and throw at the bottom of the wardrobe, you will bring back in season five or season six or something. Because like I can't live without knowing both of these things. No, I will absolutely guarantee you I'll get both of these people. It's just about lining up schedules or schedules. Okay. And I will iron out, much like the bulldog becomes the greyhound, I will iron out one <laughs> to become the other. But I'll promise you, I'll bring you one of those stories next week and then the other one in season five, okay? Okay, I look forward to both stories. So as, uh, as famously, you know, people who like a challenge shout uh, at the top of a mountain when they've run up all the way, Bring it on! <laughs> Talk to you next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.